I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. I'm Adam Yurick, along with Jim Massessa. Today's episode features The Silence of the Lambs. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs. In this chilling adaptation of the best-selling novel by Thomas Harris, the astonishingly versatile director Jonathan Demme crafted a taut psychological thriller about an American obsession, serial murder. As Clarice Starling, an FBI trainee who enlists the help of infamous Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter to gain insight into the mind of another killer, Jodie Foster subverts classic gender dynamics and gives one of the most memorable performances of her career. As her foil, Anthony Hopkins is the archetypal antihero, cultured, quick-witted, and savagely murderous, delivering a harrowing portrait of humanity gone terribly wrong. A gripping police procedural and a disquieting immersion into a twisted psyche, The Silence of the Lambs swept the Academy Awards, Best Picture, Director, Screenplay, Actress, Actor, and remains a cultural touchstone. This movie came out in 1991, 30 years ago. It's 118 minutes long, in color, 1.85 to 1 aspect ratio, and if you're following along at home, this is spine number 13. I'm assuming you've seen Silence of the Lambs before, right? Like this is it's such a popular movie. Back in uh 1996 when young Jimmy was in high school and was on a band trip taking a bus from Pennsylvania to Florida, this was one of the movies they chose to show on the bus full of <laughs> young high school kids and uh it really affected me. <laughs> And I don't think I'd watched it since then. I have a similar story of that where I think I was in elementary school. I would have been in like fourth grade, maybe third or fourth grade. And we took a bus trip to Ellis Island. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the movie that they played on that was The Terminator, (laughs) which is the perfect movie to play for. The first one? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, that's not super. I'm pretty sure. I don't think it was. I don't think it was Terminator 2 because I don't think you know, what's his face was in that movie. I'm pretty sure it was the first one. Thankfully, it was on a smaller screen and like they didn't really have the audio playing. It was just like the video, um, but it was just kind of weird. I remember adults being like, um, why are we watching this? And the driver was like, that's all I got. <laughs> so uh, he just like, he just like wouldn't turn it off. But yeah, I mean, this movie, I don't remember the first. I mean, I wish I remembered more the first time I saw movies. I probably saw clips of it on TV. Definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good... I don't consider this movie a horror film. It's, you know, definitely a thriller. Yeah. And I'm not a big, like, I'm not a big, like, horror film fan. It's not, they're not movies that I would normally pick up and watch. But I do like thrillers. As this movie, you know, like uh, Manhunter, which is the 19, I think that was 88, uh, 86. Uh, the movie Manhunter with William Peterson and Brian Cox, which is based on the the novel Red Dragon, which is the... Uh, oh, the sequel. The original, yeah, the, the yeah, I think it's... Prequel. The prequel to Silence of the Lambs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter, and then William Peterson plays Will Graham. And that movie was remade as Red Dragon um, in the early 2000s, I think, with Edward Norton playing Will Graham and, you know, Anthony Hopkins reprising his role as uh, Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, I saw that one. I did not see the third movie, Hannibal. Hannibal. 
Yeah. I've seen Hannibal. It's not very good. That one's tough because you have, what's her name? Uh, Juliana uh, Moore. Juli- uh, Julian Moore playing Clarice, which was kind of like, I mean, Jodie Foster, she won an Oscar for this performance. It's really hard to come in and play the same character yeah. that somebody won an Oscar for. and get. Oh, and is she playing justice. the same character? Yeah, she's that? Clarice Starling uh, in, in Hannibal. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. And Red Dragon, I thought Red Dragon was good. I don't think it's as good as Manhunter, but I thought it was was a good movie. But yeah, those types of movies are, you know, I'm always a big fan of a good psychological thriller. And this one is definitely at the top. I think too, because it's so, and we'll get into a lot of this stuff, but there's so many cool cinematography and like techniques that they use uh, from like, you know, a directing standpoint, just like camera choices. Mm -hmm. We'll get into talking about like the characters looking right into the lens of the camera. You have one of the greatest all-time performances in a movie and the character is only in less than a quarter of the film there's only one other actor i think i don't remember what the movie is but there's only one other actor who had less screen time than him and won an academy award for best actor oh wow he's only in for like 14 minutes total of the movie he's not the main character of the movie but he's the most memorable character he's the only actor in all three of the movies right i believe so yeah he's in hannibal obviously because he's the main character in that driving that and then he is in red dragon but in a minor role anthony hopkins is not the main character he's not even really the killer of this movie he's not the bad guy no no he is a bad guy yeah and anthony hopkins was pretty much he was like i'll do this and then if this doesn't work out i'm done with making movies and i'm going to go back to the <laughs> stage and this just like launched his career i mean jodie foster had already won an oscar the previous year or the year before she had already won an oscar I mean, and she was in Taxi Driver and like as like a 14-year-old. So her career was already, mm-hmm. you know, but this just made it even, you know, this was kind of the type of thing where it's like, okay, now you can just do whatever you want. And Jonathan Demme, too, I think it was his directing resume was like all over the place. You know, he had done like screwball comedy. So even just doing this movie was kind of weird. And then he went on to do um, Philadelphia like two years later. Yeah. Um, which Manchurian Candidate. Yep. Yeah. Manchurian Candidate. Mm-hmm. Not as good as the original, but good. Yeah. Yeah. The original is in the Criterion Collection, I think. Yes. He also did a lot of documentaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of mini documentaries and music videos. He did um, one of my favorite music documentaries is uh, the Neil Young Heart of Gold. It's like his album Prairie Wind. And he's in Nashville at the Grand Ole Opry playing that. Lots of good. Like it's a live concert film. Really, really well done. I wonder if that's one of the reasons that Chris Isaac is in this movie. Because he doesn't do a whole lot of acting. And he's mostly a musician. But yeah, he was like a SWAT commander in this movie. Yep. So I, I watched the film with the commentary. So the commentary was Jonathan Demme, Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Ted Talley, who wrote the screenplay. Like you said, won an Academy Award for that. And then um, I think it was um, John Douglas, who was the FBI agent that was a part of the behavioral sciences unit. He is the the character um, that Jack Crawford's based on, Scott Glenn's character. Oh, okay. They weren't in the same room. It was separate commentary, and they would just kind of splice him back in. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Demme talked about throughout the film there's parts where he's like oh yeah that's my buddy who does this or like oh that's my buddy who does that or like I like this guy so and Chris Isaac was one of those people he um he had like a bunch of this guy's like my friend from Chicago who's like a radio DJ and he just loves movies so I put him in all my films and he's just like a, and he's like the EMT or like Ted Talley as a cameo is one of the SWAT guys too it seems to be like he puts his friends in like little tiny cameo yeah I have a note and that probably explains it where I wrote down A lot of the secondary cast, some of the police officers or the family of victims, not the best acting. It seemed like some of them may not really have acted before, and I feel like that explains it. 
Yeah, I mean, you have some pretty powerful performances and, and powerful actors, like, really driving the story. Yeah. I mean, even Ted Levine, like, I used to watch the TV show Monk, which he was, he plays um, oh, yeah, yeah. the captain in that. So it's, like, which is kind of funny. Because, I mean, his voice is so unique. But he was in, like, yeah, so he was in Heat as, like, a detective. And his voice has that unique, like, it's hard yeah. to, once you see him as Buffalo Bill, and it's hard to, like, separate him from that, but it's kind of... Mm-hmm. And even again, another really good performance. I, I, like all the main characters just like knocked it out of the park. I think that's one of the things that makes it so good and go back to watch. It's just like an acting masterclass. Yeah, the guy who uh, plays the Dr. Frederick Chilton. Yeah. Anthony Yield, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. He's got that real distinct face. Yes, yeah. He always plays like a jerk in everything I've ever seen him in. Yeah, that's, and the, the minute he came on, I'm like, oh, geez, it's that guy. Yeah, and he plays that to like a T. He's so irritating and evil. I think his first line, he's talking to Clarice, and he says, You know, we get a lot of detectives here, but I must say I can't ever remember one as attractive. Oh, yeah. Just like hitting on her. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of those moments where you're just like, Ugh. I think it's one, like clearly very accurate for the time period that the movie's taking place, too. She's a young female FBI agent. In the director's commentary, Douglas, the FBI agent, talked about how he had only one female profiler in his division, that it was just like a rare thing, and the majority, like everybody else was, was men. Yeah. That was part of the story, and I think like what attracted Jodie Foster to the role. I mean, everyone liked the novel, so that's like the big thing here, is that Thomas Harris wrote this novel, and it's like a huge bestseller. At one point, Gene Hackman, he originally acquired the rights to it because hmm. I guess Jodie Foster read it, tried to acquire the rights to it, found out Gene Hackman already had uh, the rights to it, and he had planned to direct it and then likely was going to play the Lecter role. The rumor was that he saw himself in a clip from Mississippi Burning, which is a really good movie. He plays a bad guy in that, and he realized the Lecter role was so evil he didn't want to continue to attach his name to that. So that's how the rights kind of got floated back out and how Jonathan Demme and Jodie Foster... And Michelle Pfeiffer was actually the first pick to play Clarice, but backed out. Uh, I could see that. One of the first scenes, you know, the movie starts with her running and kind of doing an obstacle course at at Quantico. Mm -hmm. And then she goes into the building and gets in an elevator. And when the doors open, it's just all these like very tall, beefy FBI guys all wearing their like red sweatshirts. And she's this small young woman standing next to them. Nobody says anything about it, but like right from that shot, you know, this is her life. It's her against this establishment of men. And there's really only like one other female FBI agent that we ever see, I think. Yeah, like her friend. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah. And that seems to come up a lot. Her boss, the commander. Jack Crawford. Jack Crawford, Scott Glenn. He's kind of borderline throughout the movie in, in the way he behaves with her. But we have the general idea that he's trying to be a good guy. And he never really like crosses any lines, but there's other scenes where she specifically calls him out saying like, Matters, Mr. Crawford. Cops look at you to see how to act. Matters. Point taken. So it does come up several times throughout the movie. And it's interesting that he's just like noted and he turns around in the car and goes away he, or, or just faces away because he's not like he didn't apologize. <laughs> he's just like, okay, no, noted. That's later in the film when they're, um, they go to, I think, West Virginia. There's all those cops, the local boys, just kind of uh, crowding in there. Again, a, a similar scene in which she's dwarfed by all these like really tall male cops. You can tell when he's doing that, when he like pulls the sheriff aside, because he says, When I, t- I told the sheriff we shouldn't talk in front of a woman, that really burned you, didn't it? 
was just Smoke's darling. I had to get rid of him. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, too, in that scene where she, like, turns on her thicker West Virginia accent to kind of, like, yeah. go out. Any Clarice Lecter scene, I mean, those are, like, the highlights of the film. But to me, the one is the first time they meet when he basically destroys her. You know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor wire trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father to you? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the land? You know how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the empty And you can see the look on her face and she's like, the different micro expressions that she goes through in that span of like 10 seconds where it's like she, she's trying to like fight back all the tears but yet also keep her composure in front of this guy who's just like, just, just like without knowing anything about her, told her like her entire life and like her entire like psychological profile. Uh, I think it's just really, really good. She holds on to that well. There's a scene in uh, 30 Rock. I think it's in the first season where Alec Baldwin, he's the big boss and he is playing poker with Kenneth, who's just like a page. It's kind of a ripoff of that line where he's psychologically profiling Kenneth. Little Kenneth Allen Parcel from Stone Mountain, Georgia. Growing up in your mama's tract house, dreaming of working on a TV show, dreaming of making it all the way to the NBC. You're scaring me, Mr. Donaghy. You've come a long way, haven't you, Kenneth Allen, with your cheap loafers and your page jacket, but you'll always be a pig farmer's son, boy, because I smell fried bologna all over you. <laughs> Jodie Foster, all her scenes are pretty much it's her and Anthony Hopkins, or it's her and Scott Glenn. You know, she has a couple scenes where she's by herself doing some research, but for the most part, it's always like her and somebody else playing off of each other. And those back and forths are always so great. I was surprised when I realized this movie came out in 91. I mean, watching it, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, this movie is dated in appearance, not in like the quality or anything like that, but I was just impressed with how well this movie still holds up yeah i mean i think that in my opinion movies that don't hold up well are movies that rely a lot on making the current technology at the time seem overly fancy and modern yeah you could go oh hey like when she goes to like she would have had a cell phone she could have called you know somebody when she went into the house or texted somebody that would have of course changed the dynamic a little bit but they're not really doing anything the, the plot of the movie doesn't move along because technology doesn't exist. So talking about like those character exchanges, I think Tak Fujimoto is the, um, was a cinematographer, but I, I yeah. know he and Jonathan Demi both came up with that idea to have this story is told through Clarice's point of view. So anytime there's a Clarice, like a single exchange between her and another character, most of the time those characters are looking like they do this close up. And they, the, the other characters stare directly into the lens. Mm-hmm. And when it comes back to Jodie Foster, her eye line is just slightly off the lens, which was done intentionally to be like, that's her point of view. And the only time that ever switches is at the very end of the movie when the point of view changes to Buffalo Bill through the night vision goggles. And then right. 
that's the only point in the movie that shifts to someone else's point of view. And outside of that, there's that long period of the movie where none of the main characters appear at all. The scene where Hannibal Lecter is in the cage. And then there's that long time where like he's missing. And, you know, it's like five minutes of the movie where there's Mm -hmm. Anthony Hopkins is laying on the ground with the other guy's face on top of his head. But you don't know that at the time. Another parody from pop culture, The Office. Oh, yeah. Where Dwight like stabs the CPR dummy and then wears its face. Are you okay? Oh my God! Oh my God! Can you tell me why you had to cut the face off the dummy? I didn't think it was very realistic in the movie, and it turns out it's pretty realistic. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's one of the best. One of the best episodes of The Office. You were talking about those scenes where it's kind of her face and somebody else's face, those close-ups, and it's her point of view. One of those scenes that jumped out at me the most was when she's talking to Lecter through the glass. We're looking at her face, which is slightly off-center. And then for us, it's like to her left, I guess it's actually her right, Mm -hmm. you see the reflection of Anthony Hopkins' face in the glass. So you're watching her talk to him, but you can still see him without having to do a shot where you have them on opposite sides of the screen, you still have them both on the same visual side as the audience. It looked almost too sharp, like maybe that was added in post. They weren't actually filming his reflection. They filmed him maybe separate and then just superimposed him on there. But either way, as like a composed shot, I feel like it's creepy because he kind of looks like he's almost behind her and he's like a little faint. It's a great way to have that type of conversation without having to fall back to just this person on this side in a cage versus this person on the other side, which probably would not be as scary either because you would clearly see that they're separated. This other shot was like, he's right there with her, even though he's not. Yeah, I think I know in, in one of the, in the commentaries that uh, Jonathan Demi talked about how they intentionally made sure that there was not a like close-up style for this film. He's like, you know, you watch some movies and it's like, oh, they cut to a close-up. And the close-up is always the same. The actor is always framed in the same way, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a certain, you know, uh, focal length. Like, the tightness is a certain way. And this one, it was like, no. Anytime there was a close-up, they tried to always make it different to give you that little bit of uneasiness. There's the one scene later in the movie where it, like, really gets really, really tight on Hannibal Lecter's face. And he his head's, like, tilted down. And it's like, the whole frame is just his face talking. And yeah, I mean, anytime he's in there, it's, it's super creepy. Yeah. I think one of the best shots in the whole movie is that when Clarice enters and meets Dr. Electra for the first time and the camera pans into his cell and he's just standing there in the middle, like perfectly still, and he's staring right into the camera lens. Mm-hmm. You know, Silence Lambs, of course, has one of the most misquoted lines. The famous thing is that he, you know, people say, oh, like, hello, Clarice. But he actually never says that in the movie at all. He says, like, good evening, Clarice. But he never actually says, uh, hello, Clarice. Yeah, the one I remember is, I don't know if he's trying to scare her, but he says, A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely one of the best. <laughs> um, I know that in the commentary Anthony Hopkins talked about where he just did the sound, he thought it was from a Bela Lugosi Dracula film. Ah. He went back later and, and found that that actually never happened in any of those movies. And he just like must have been something in his uh, subconscious that he did it. Because I guess he did it too. And it, um, Jonathan Demi wasn't expecting it. 
originally was just kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want to keep that or not, but it's become so iconic. Yeah, I don't know if Jodie Foster was expecting it either, because she kind of jumps. It looks so realistic, like when he does that sound, and she like kind of like jumped back from it. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too, because both actors talked about how it was difficult that they actually didn't spend a lot of time together filming. Because of the way, you know, they shot the movie with these tight close-ups and you looking right into the lens, that would mean you would have a 35-millimeter camera with a huge matte box on it sitting right in front of your face. Mm. In interviews, they talked about how they didn't even really see each other because they weren't looking at each other. They were looking at the camera lens or a mark slightly off the focal length of the lens. Right. The famous story, too, is that they both were scared of each other. So Anthony Hopkins was like, this is Jodie Foster. Like, she's won an Oscar. I'm just this no-name British actor. He had done minor films and like he wasn't well known in the US. He was about to give up his film career before this movie. And Jodie Foster was like taxi driver and she had just won the Oscar. And Jodie Foster was just scared of like from the first like table read, which is terrified of him. He based Hannibal Lecter's like personality and voice partly on Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey, you know, the, the robot yeah. um, that's like, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hmm. He is very like, even-toned most of the time. Right. He saw Lecter as a cold, calculated, robotic type of killer. And he also based some of it, his mannerisms off of um, a acting, I think it was a drama teacher, acting teacher that he had long ago when he was in college in Britain. Because he talked about the way that he would scold people, the like, no, no, no. This like way he would like impose himself and that he doesn't blink. One of the things, if you watch the movie, he yeah. like, was very clear about... He barely blinks any time he's on close-up talking to Clarice. There's the scene where he asks Clarice to tell him about her childhood, and she starts talking about, you know, telling the story of her father dying. And he turns away, and that's when he kind of closes his eyes. In the commentary, they're talking a lot about how serial killers tend to have come from abused backgrounds. So it's kind of like he's reliving his own abuse in that scene when Clarice is describing the, you know, her childhood. Right. I've read part of the book of Silence of the Lambs. I haven't read the whole thing, but I know that in the book, he it talks about how he's still writing uh, psychology papers and publishing them in journals and stuff like that, even from prison. Oh, geez. He completely would mess with everybody who would try to come in and profile him. They hint to that, which is why Crawford's sending Clarice in, like one last ditch effort, see what happens with this woman as a trainee. And I think that's an interesting thing when he, that, that's like one of his first thing when he holds up the credentials. And I just love his scene because he's like, Closer, please. Closer. And then Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. And I think that Clarice's reaction too is very confident. Yes, I'm a student. I'm here to learn from you. Maybe you can decide for yourself whether or not I'm qualified enough to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a mistake to view Clarice as a fish out of water because she like went to the University of Virginia. She's got dual degrees in like psychology and criminal justice. Right. Super, super intelligent person. Yeah. Just young and inexperienced, but she's well-educated. She's not just your run-of-the-mill FBI agent. One of my favorite lines, he's just kind of like, Throw me with your acumen. I just like that line a lot. I think that's, you know, really testing her and trying to get her to break, which I don't think she ever really does. I mean, she tells him personal stuff at the end, the story about the lambs, of course, which is where the title of the film comes from. But even then, I think there's some empathy. Obviously, serial killers, psychopaths don't really have the ability to have empathy, but there's like some sort of connection there. And I think it's between the idea of that they both had this 
childhood that caused them to be the way that they are. You mentioned that we're not supposed to feel sorry for Clarice or feel like she's a fish out of water, but you do definitely see her grow throughout the movie. Whereas in the beginning of the movie, she's very hesitant, even being called into Crawford's office in the beginning. I don't know if it's just for the sake of the movie, he's like reading her resume. See, double major, psych and criminology, graduated in Magna, summer internships at the Reisinger Clinic. It says here, when you graduate, you want to come to work for me in behavioral science. Classic movie, fill us in on her backstory. As he like starts taking her out in the field, you know, she meets Hannibal for the first time. He takes her to the autopsy. She always starts out a little timid and unsure of herself. And then by the end, you can hear her voice is more confident. You can see she's like falling into the training that she has because she is very intelligent. It's just this is her first big case, and it's a huge case for anyone. And the fact that they just throw in this trainee, it is a little fish out of water just that it's so new to her, but she's definitely got the experience for it. And then by the end, her final showdown with Buffalo Bill, she catches on to him pretty quick from coming in the door. She realizes who he is. But she still hesitates a little, like she pulls her gun on him, and then he staggers out of the room. She had a chance there. She had a couple seconds where she could have shot. She didn't. And then that leads to the chase through the house, the night vision, all of that. And eventually, she's able to shoot him in the dark, using the culmination of her skills. So there's a couple things that happen. I mean, if we skip to talking about that scene, which is really creepy. I think that's one of the creepiest scenes in that film. But I do think there's two subtle things that happen in that scene and one that's i think is a little bit more obvious that that's how she knows that he's there he does put her his hand very close to her face so you have to imagine too that she could either hear him or smell him yeah and then he cocks his pistol right which is audible and that's when she turns around and fires her gun so that was like his mistake by cocking the pistol which reading through imdb i guess somebody figured out what kind of gun that was and you don't actually have to cock the pistol to fire it he could have just pulled the trigger but whatever, it's movie magic. Well, the other problem with that scene, I guess you kind of had to do this back then, especially on film like that, but they keep cutting from looking at her through night vision, and then they show us, the audience, Buffalo Bill's face wearing the night vision. He's lit in a way that you see like the top of his head and kind of his chin, but the lighting blacks out his face to keep it dark and creepy. Yeah. But to us, It's very obvious he's standing right there because we can see him, but she can't. Right. I feel like nowadays with digital and like better lighting, you would have a very, very dark shot there. A lot of times they'll use real natural light there. They won't even have extra lights, but you can't really do that with old film like that. No, yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's like been the big advantage to digital cinematography is the ability to shoot in really, really low light. Yeah. I had heard that too, that the way that they were shooting in the stock that they were using and the lenses that they were using, the actors couldn't even move an inch off of their mark because they go out of focus. Mm. So it was like everything was like really well rehearsed and like not really much improvised in terms of movements and things like that because it would have messed up the focus of the focus of the film. You know, you talked before about when they move Hannibal to that cell within the room where he's kind of by himself, his escape. When the police officers come in and find the other dead officers, That's a very visually striking shot. Oh, yeah. He's like an angel, and he's been like gutted, and yeah. From a cinematography point of view, to me, that's an iconic shot from this movie, but it also seemed very unrealistic. There's a lot of light rays that you can see because there's particles in the air, but 
we never see that kind of lighting or that kind of atmosphere until he does this. Yeah, I didn't really understand where he was. And that like seemed like a very big ballroom or it had like a stage platform. My thought was that there's like stage lighting above there. And maybe he Hmm. being the theatrical person that he was like, I think it's a courthouse. Is it a courthouse? I think that's, is that the Shelby County courthouse? Is that what it was? I just don't understand what that room is. It's super open. There's no seats in it. And there's a platform in the middle that clearly is permanently there. Yeah. I didn't know if there was lighting above there. And who knows <laughs> if he turned lights off to make it darker. So it was harder to see the fact that he was the one like wearing the guy's face. Not only does he string up the guard that way, but he creates this lighting and atmosphere to make it look dramatic because oh, yeah. that's not how the lighting was, which is insane if we're supposed to believe that not only did he do this, but instead of running away and hiding right away, he went through the trouble of making it look dramatic so that when he was found, it would be more intense to those finding it. Exactly, yeah. And they're paying way more attention to that than they are to the cop lying on the ground who is really him. So that way he was able to kind of hide and do all that. The other creepy thing about that scene, right before that, when he's still in his cell attacking the officers, just afterwards, there's a shot of him where he's listening to music and he looks up and you can see the blood on his chin. But you can also see in the beginning of that shot, they show his food that they had brought to him, which is how he escaped, is on the floor eaten. Mm -hmm. So not only did he attack the officers and mutilate them, he then sat down and ate his dinner before he did all this other stuff. Yeah. Again, I was just thinking like, why wouldn't you just run? You're free at that point. The longer you stay there, the more likely you are to get caught. It just like emphasizes that he's not sane. No, no. I mean, he's very arrogant and confident in his ability to do what he needs to do. I think like the minor thing that's in there is that they were like restricting that no one was ever going to go up into the fourth floor until they had to move him again. Yeah, that's true. And the assumption was those two cops weren't going to interact with him that much. Yeah. So that's probably why like, because it's not until you hear they hear the gunshot, which he fires on purpose to get everything started. Mm. Who knows how much time had passed. He could have been up there for an hour doing that. Yeah, I mean, definitely a super, super striking scene. Um, definitely one of the most iconic scenes in the, in the film. A lot of the other iconic scenes, I think, come in from Buffalo Bill's actual, like, hideout. The actress who played Catherine, mm-hmm. who's like the last girl to be kidnapped, that's a part that could have been very overlooked. You could have really had anybody play that, and they didn't need to be, it didn't need to be well done, because she doesn't really have a lot of lines. But I feel like it was kind of refreshing to see She's definitely scared of her situation, but she's also angry and doing her best to fight back and get out of there. Yeah. She's helpless because what she tries is not necessarily working, but she does so much clever things. She's yelling at him in anger, not just like, help me. She's like, now you give me a telephone and lower it down here now. Even to Clarice at the end, I think yeah, that's what makes that character really interesting is Clarice comes in and she's like, Catherine Martin? Yes! FBI! You're safe! Safe shit, get me out of here! <laughs> just the fact that she's not like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. She's just like very much like, no, 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 like this is, you know, very angry, which I think, yeah. I think really showed, like, I think it was, like, a good way to portray that character. Yeah. She's going to actively take her rescue in her own hands, which she does by getting the dog. And Mm. I think we could talk about the character Buffalo Bill for a lot, too. There was no serial killer Buffalo Bill, so he's not based exactly off of just one serial killer. From listening to the commentary, uh, 
Agent Douglas said that he's based on three serial killers. Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. probably the most famous or, or infamous serial killer of the three that he's based on. But the aspect of Ted Bundy was that he went after young women and that he would have a cast on. And Buffalo Bill has the sofa and the van, and Ted Bundy had books. So he would wait for the victim, and he would drop his books, and they'd help him, and he'd get him into the van. Oh, jeez. The other one was Ed Gein, who was someone who used to skin his victims and, like, wear their skin, make masks and stuff with their faces. And then the other one was Gary uh, Heidnick, who uh, trapped women in a pit. Douglas goes into some really horrific things he did, which I'm not going to get into because it's really not necessary. (laughs) What was interesting, too, was that the agent Douglas talks about meeting Scott Glenn for the first time. And he talks about how Glenn was like, I'm against the death penalty. And he was like, yeah, you know, he's like super liberal and he just really annoyed me. He's like, you know, we talked a lot and I gave him some things and I decided to play him a tape of these two serial killers who would kidnap and torture teenage girls. They started at 13, and they would do one for every year, like 13, 14, 15, 16. They themselves taped the audio of them basically torturing and murdering these young women. He's like, so I played the tape for him because he's like, if you were me, because Jack Crawford's based on this character, he's like, this is what it's like to be in this job. This is what these killers do. And he said he played one minute of the tape before Scott Glenn made him shut it off because he was just in tears. And Scott Glenn once said that he listened to that, and it took him years to get over having listened to that audio tape because it was the worst thing he's ever heard in his entire life and that really had him think around one how horrible these these killers are because i think agent douglas on the commentary talks a lot about how you know he's like this is the type of movie that you know we get to the ending that the people in the prison would be cheering because the guy got away you know and he's like to me it's unfortunate that hannibal lecter became such a popular character and that people almost are kind of rooting for him because he's like these people are horrible yeah He's like, that's the only downside to this movie is that, it, you know, it does portray it a little bit, but these are people who, they have no empathy. They're just cold-blooded killers. Yeah. What's interesting in the Buffalo Bill character is that, so there's the scene, well, the first real scene where you see him with the pit. He lowers the, um, the lotion down, and there's the famous line. That he, it rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Which is made fun of a lot in different movies and TV shows. But also important that he refers to her, to Catherine, as an it. He does not. Yeah. And our user name obviously probably doesn't even doesn't know what her name is. But what's interesting that scene, if you watch Ted Levine's face, is that um, he and the actress that played Catherine became good friends. And the take that ended up in the movie, Ted Levine was so affected by her screaming and crying in the scene that you can see his lip quiver and he turns his head away because he's about to cry. Yeah. And that was not actually like, it just, it ended up in the film, but he's, and then that's when he kind of like yells at her and then she's screaming. And of course he does his weird, like, ah, and, and yells right back at her. That whole scene, uh, I, uh, I watched the TV series, you're the worst. And, uh, in one of the seasons they go to a haunted house and in the haunted house, there's recreations of famous horror movies and somebody is dressed up as Buffalo Bill. And in the haunted house, he kidnaps one of the main characters of the show and like puts her in a well in the haunted house. It's all played for laughs. She's kind of screaming exactly like Catherine in the movie. But by the end, the Buffalo Bill character is helping her talk through her life situations. And he's recommending like TED Talks. Hey, we all get overwhelmed. If a problem seems too big, try breaking it up into smaller chunks. It's called chunking. There's a really great TED Talk about it. It's pretty funny, but that's the only time I've ever seen that scene done for laughs. I mean, to your point, like that scene where she's crying and then like, 
you can tell it's affecting him. And then he starts screaming. He's mimicking her screaming, which is like, yeah, it's part his emotion and part just his psychoticness. It's horrible. Yeah. That dog, though, uh, you mentioned. Precious. She pulls the dog down into the well, too. That dog has some pretty good acting credits. <laughs> I looked him up on the yeah. IMDb. The do- yeah. Or her, I guess. it's Her name is Darla. Yeah. She was in Silence of the Lambs. She was in The Burbs, Erie, Indiana, Batman Returns, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and the TV series Coach. Oh, my gosh. She's the dog in The Burbs. Yeah. That's such a... Oh, that's a great movie. The Burbs. I love that. Wow. There's actually a lot of weird Tom Hanks connections with this movie because Tom Hanks is in The Burbs. He's in Philadelphia, which has the same director and cinematographer. He's in That Thing You Do with Chris Isaac, and Chris Isaac is in this movie. And then in Philadelphia, I think Bruce Springsteen had done, he did the soundtrack for... He did the song Philadelphia. Yeah. Streets of Philadelphia. Right. Jonathan Demi did some Bruce Springsteen videos, I think. Yep. I don't know. There's a lot of weird connections with this movie. When I was looking through IMDb earlier, it's seems like a lot of the actors have been in some of the, like Monk, a lot of them were in Monk. Yeah. There was a lot in Banshee, which was not a great series. I forget what that was on, like Showtime or Cinemax or Stars. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw that. One thing we should talk about too with Buffalo Bill that hasn't really held up well and I had was always a big criticism of the film, um, especially from like LGBTQ groups, even at the time when the, when the movie came out and won the Oscars, was its treatment of transgender uh, individuals. From listening to the commentary, from reading some articles, that was always one of Jonathan Demme's biggest regrets was that he didn't, you know, really address that in a way to say, yeah, there's a scene where both Clarice and Jack Crawford say like, oh, like, and they, and they use the phrase of the term transsexualism, but they, they say like, hey, there's no evidence of that, um, of being uh, transgender or anything relating to violence. And in fact, it's the opposite. Jonathan Demme talked about how he's not really transgender he's not bisexual he's like a confused individual who doesn't know what he he wants to be those things but actually isn't yeah and i think hannibal says that to clarice at one point billy is not a real transsexual but he thinks he is he tries to be he's tried to be a lot of things i expect yes yeah that's when clarice says there's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence transsexuals are very passive and evidently there were other scenes that were cut from the film that helped reinforce that. But it has been a big criticism of the film that it associates basically uh, not being straight is somehow tied to some other, you know, that it's a mental disease or, or that it increases violence, which of course we know is not true. Right. You know, I think it's worth, worth mentioning that. I think that, um, you know, especially the, the legacy of the film, you know, isn't that. But I do think, obviously, people have always had some issues with the fact of the notoriety that it gets, and that it doesn't do a good enough job of representing um, those groups. Yeah. What do you think of the audio and the music from this movie? There wasn't a whole lot of songs. Even the score, which was done by um, Howard Shore, who... He's um, done everything. He, yeah, he went on. I think he, did, he did the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series as well. He's done a lot of, a lot of stuff. Also did That Thing You Do, another connection, yep. and Big. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean all over the place in terms of, of films these days. I mean, the score, I think the score is good. It adds that extra bit of suspense where it needs to be. And it's not like overly, mm-hmm. you know, they could have easily added like a theme. Obviously, he would have written a theme for Lecter and Clarice, but it's not like one that you can recognize. Yeah. That, oh, hey, here's where the character is about to show up because this cue or this theme is playing. Of course, I think the music, the couple songs that play um, in the background in Buffalo Bill's basement, uh, Q Lazarus. 
American Girl, the Tom Petty song, you know, is she singing to in the car? That was a little on the nose, like foreshadowing. Yeah, it was. It was a little too much there. The majority of films have music in them, whether it's popular music or whether it's, uh, you know, film score. A couple months ago, I watched uh, No Country for Old Men again and had oh, forgotten yeah. that there's no music in that movie at all. And there's a really great podcast that Roger Deakins and his wife, James Deacon, do called Team Deacons. And they did an episode with the sound designer of that movie. He's a sound designer, editor, mixer. Um, his name is Skip uh, Leavesay. And so there's... it's great episode um it's just from a couple weeks ago actually they interviewed him and he talked a lot about that like what it's like to be a sound designer on a movie that has no music because they normally have so kind of an interesting episode to hear those people you know talk about that aspect but i think music can always overpower a film and i think in this one it like it adds just what it needs to yeah and i think the song choices for buffalo bill were good in the sense that they're creepy and they're not over the top they're not playing that only the audience hears them. There's like a there's a phrase for that, and I, I don't remember what it is, but the characters in the movie are hearing that music. So versus like he's playing it loud on a stereo, versus it be the songs that are playing in the background that just add that theme for us. Right. We've talked a lot about different quotes. Like obviously, Lecter, you know, he's not in the movie so much, and there's so many good quotes that have lived on. I think about quid pro quo. Right. But also his part where he's like, tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. And the movie ends with, you know, she becomes a special agent or agent. And at her graduation, her and Crawford have that handshake that kind of has that really awkward. To me, it's an awkward handshake, like close up on their hands shaking. Almost like they slowed that down a little bit. But I guess it's a good moment of mutual respect between the two of them. And then she gets the phone call, which on the other end is, um, is Hannibal Lecter. Starling. Wow, Clarice. Have the lamb stopped screaming? After Lecter. And an interesting fact about that that was in the commentary was that normally in those scenes, there'd be no one on the other end of the phone. Jodie Foster would have come up, picked up the phone, and maybe there would have been a production assistant or something on, on like the background reading Hannibal's, uh, reading Lecter's lines. Right, right. Anthony Hopkins was in a different state filming another movie, and Jonathan Demi specially got something hooked up to wire him in. Huh. And so when Jodie Foster picks up the phone and hears his voice, she didn't know Anthony Hopkins was going to be on the other end. So her look of surprise and shock is real because she was reacting to the fact that she didn't expect him to be giving the dialogue on the other end. I like when uh, directors do things like that for natural reactions without crossing the line into yes. being dumb. There's been too many of those that have happened in movies where they do things to like really mess with people. Yeah. But yeah, and I think that's a great scene. And one of the things that could have easily ruined this movie in a way is there's not like there's brutality mm -hmm. but even the scene in which some of the most gore that happens is really anthony you know uh, lector attacking those cops yeah. and even then we see a lot of that happening off screen right which i think makes this really good and one of the things that identified this movie differently was that it's not a lot of gore it's not a horror film where you're like see you see things after the fact 
or you see him he's you know he's bludgeoning the the police officer with the baton and you you're seeing the blood spray kind of up but you're not seeing the like impact yeah and i think that you see a movie made like that today even on television they go for the gore factor right so he's uh you know of course chilton comes off and he's got his like disguise on or stuff and i think it's really that like closing line of the film which is so good which is like i do wish we could chat longer but i'm having an old friend for dinner which is a sort of a double entendre there. And I do like his walk. He has that a swagger. Yeah, he has that swagger, which when you watch him throughout the other parts of the movie, when he's walking, even the couple times he moves in his cell or when he's walking out of the, uh, when he's walking out of the cage, he almost like glides. Like it's the very robotic. And this is like, he's actually in character as that person. Right. And he's wearing a wig and like a, and a hat. Uh, yeah, yeah. And sunglasses and stuff. And, and, you know, obviously going after Chilton to, uh, to do who knows what to him and that's a kind of an interesting choice where the movie credits go right and if you watch the end of the credits the street shot is still there until the very very end i always think about like that's like a five minute credit scene and they're just like had the camera rolling and like were all those people like extras or they just like had a normal town go it's like so interesting choices that directors make for things that don't really make a difference yeah it's a good shot though you don't really see that kind of stuff anymore it's interesting i was reading an article um recently that kind of lamented the move to the streaming services that kind of auto queue up of the next episode where you don't really get to watch the end credits and how going to a movie theater which who knows when <laughs> obviously we're recording this episode in the in the middle of a, a, a pan, pandemic mm-hmm. in 2021 going to the movie theater and, and sitting there and the and you watch a powerful film and the film ends and you're just kind of sitting there in the end credits i mean obviously the Marvel movies have introduced this idea of a of a mid credit or post credit scene, right? But just the impact of you know you're sitting there letting it sink in, you're just absorbing what you just watched, having that moment of just being able to to take it in. It's kind of gone now because even on you know Netflix, it's like you watch a movie and you get thirty seconds into the end credits and they're already playing a trailer for like another similar film to to keep you engaged, right? Right. And it's tough because you can barely even turn those features off anymore. But the I, this article was really talking about like how that. That kind of sucks because that was like one of the best parts about the impact of the end of the episode. You know, even I'm thinking back to Lost and like a lot of those episodes ended like dramatically on a cliffhanger and like, you know, it was all about a mystery and it was just like, boom, and you'd have those end credits and they would at least let them play for a minute or like a minute before they'd queue up to like the commercial for the next thing. Right. So overall, I mean, I think, again, like I said at the beginning, this is an all time favorite movie i mean if i'm putting a top 10 list together i really feel like i would put this put this on there it's a weird movie for me to say that i would rewatch it a bunch of times but i think it's just that good yeah i'm really glad we got to finally get this up uh, uh, an episode on on this up yeah i don't think i would have ever rewatched this on my own it's definitely a good movie and i have watched a lot of scary movies i keep a list it's well over 100 and you know like you said this isn't necessarily a horror movie it's suspense but i would definitely categorize it as a scary movie but i didn't really have any desire to rewatch it probably from that traumatic (laughs) teenage first watching of it but i definitely appreciated the acting more now knowing anthony hopkins is not hannibal lecter he's an actor and just seeing how well he played that part it's really good and i would definitely recommend if you have not seen this movie in a while give it another shot for sure that's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes at criteriononthecouch.com slash episode 026. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, it really helps our podcast be found by other fans. 
Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, we're at Criterion Couch, and on Instagram, we're at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Yurick with Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening. See you next time.